1: They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: That's that's really a, a, a bad thing to do for a judge, and a lot of courts would think that you know, it might even be reversible, but that's that's something that's pretty rare and should never happen.
3: Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. We just wrapped up the story of Samuel Contreras, the man who spent almost 20 years incarcerated for a murder he says he didn't commit. As always, when we wrap up a case, it's time to sit down with our resident attorney, Michael Leonard, from Leonard Trial Lawyers in Chicago, Illinois. Michael is a defence attorney with decades of trial experience and a man who's had his own fair share of murder trials to contend with. So we caught up with Michael as he was between appointments to get his take on this case. Let's jump straight into the new case, Saul Contreras, uh, over 19 years, incarcerated so far for this crime. As we know, the murder, uh, sadly, of a 22-month-old child. So, um, you know, always extremely sad when we talk about any death, but even more so, I think, when we're talking uh, kids involved, which is a tough one. But as always, let's kickstart it with just your um, first initial thoughts on it.
2: Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, there, there's so much conflicting evidence. You know, it's, it's not a case where some of the others where you could just say like oh my god you know all the procedural safeguards and constitutional protections were ignored um you know this one is much more nuanced and you know that the, obviously the central point is the statement so you know we probably need to
3: Dive there first. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, yeah, as we know, he he did two. He made two statements in the end. One was um, the the first statement, which was you know the story which he stuck with um, from day one of, of what happened that night. And of course, the second one is a statement where he admits to officers that um, he he was the one who sort of struck uh, Jasmine four times into the abdomen, which has caused the the um, the injuries. The thing that troubles me the most, I think, about that statement is, and I, and I say it in one of the episodes it's not unusual to have i suppose an interrogation not be recorded that long ago i mean this was almost 20 years ago but it's still quite troubling that there was absolutely no records taken of that interrogation whatsoever where he made those admissions
2: yeah you make a you make an outstanding point unfortunately you know 20 years ago even in a lot of jurisdictions 10 years ago and even in some jurisdictions now but much much more rarely especially in big metropolitan areas there, there was the problem of of not audio taping and videotaping the statements, and part of it you could argue was convenience, and part of it was that it creates a record very favorable to law enforcement, right? And there wasn't certainly back in those days a huge motivation to audio tape and videotape when, um, you know, cynically you can say, well, it gives you opportunity to law enforcement to to say anything they want and and of course a lot of people would argue with me that that's not true but there's been a lot of reforms in the US system even in my state in Illinois where you know things like that have to be videotaped now or have to be audio taped and so you know, you have a lot of cases even even some more minor felonies when they're in an interrogation room that camera's running the whole time you know hours and hours yeah and you know at a minimum of course you want to have audio tape so We're at a huge disadvantage because that didn't happen. And you can draw, you know, many different conclusions from that.
3: As you know, I mean, public defenders on this show get a bit of a rough deal from, from the inmates. But I mean, this has been the very first case where because Proclaimed Justice are involved, I've had access to the trial transcripts and been able to read, um, you know, exactly what was said and the questions that were asked. And in my a very humble opinion, I've, I believe that Saul's defense was, they were very, very good. And they really went, they did not back down on anything. I mean, they went really hard on the detective regarding this. Lack of recording. Like, he didn't even take any notes. Like, the defense attorney, you know, said, When did this occur? And he's like, Well, two years ago. And he's like, Right. Okay. So, how do we know what was said in that room? Are you going to be able to recall exactly what was said? The detective was like, Well, not exactly. He really does push him to the point saying, You know, why were literally no, not even any notes taken? We've literally got to take your word for it over his.
2: Yeah. It, it's crazy. I mean, and there's been a, certainly a recognition that that's not the way that's not the way to do things but it is uh highly unusual when you have you have multiple people in the room you know even back then it would be likely that somebody out of the group would be taking notes so that that's still a little bit unusual however i will say that you know the old way of doing it 20 years ago would be to you know interrogate somebody not audio tape and not videotape very often except in you know except in rare cases and then oftentimes not even have any notes that are independent of the statement that they claim the person gave. And, th- and there's a lot of different ways to have them do the statement. You know, in some jurisdictions, they actually have them write it out in their own hand and initial each page and give them the opportunity to make corrections and all that sort of stuff. Um, this is a little different technique where you have a, a detective typing the statement in, in a non-verbatim form and then essentially getting the defendant to sign off as it being not a verbatim account, but, you know, reflects accurately what was said. And so it's troublesome for a lot of reasons. And that's why it's come into disfavor in our system. And rarely would you see this technique used today. Um, but the problem for all of us now is, you know, we, since we don't know what happened in that room, it all comes down to, to a lot to a large degree upon credibility of Saul and the character of Saul. You know, so that's why you're, you're really left guessing um, I can't say that, gee, I can tell from all the evidence that's been presented that he's an innocent guy. I mean, certainly there's a lot of stuff that supports his innocence. But, you know, the tough part is for a jury to overcome a statement in this type of case.
3: I want to talk about the um, false confession because they brought in an, an expert. Defense brought in an expert to um, basically <laughs> get on the stand and, and talk about um, false confessions. Essentially, the judge said, no, we're not allowing that. The prosecution fought it very hard as well. He really wasn't allowed to say much at all on the stand, um, apart from some of the techniques that are used by detectives, and that was it. Um, he was later allowed to give testimony while the jury was not in the room as to the specifics of this case, but that obviously that doesn't help when the jury aren't in the room.
4: Uh, at the trial, was there an expert on false confessions?
0: Yes, there was, Dr. Afshi Uh, he said, uh, Pretty much that the uh, confession was false it, it fell into that category it fell into the criteria he, he pretty much knew what they had asked he knew the way they had approached it uh, unfortunately uh, during the actual trial they did not allow him to testify to this they did not allow him to give his, his expert witness testimony
4: what did they allow him to tell the jury
0: basically they allowed him to say uh, that the police do these type of things uh, and the procedure that is used, but of course that was objected to, um, and so they did not allow him to give his his uh, opinion as, a, as an expert witness.
3: Is it a thing in the U.S. that um, you know these false confessions are still really? Not taken seriously?
2: Oh no, I, I would disagree. I mean, again, the tough part about this is we're looking back 20 years and things have changed dramatically, yeah. you know, because of programs like the Innocence Project, because of the realization that when someone gives a statement that it can be coerced and that there are a many, a multitude of factors which would leave self, lead somebody to give a false confession. So our systems come to a realization that False confessions do happen. They do happen on a regular basis. There's reasons for them. Some of it's the technique. Um, some of it's psychological warfare in the in the interrogation room. Um, so, but but things have changed so much that we're kind of looking back at a, at a piece of history here. Yeah. So we have to kind of start with that, and then uh, maybe we kind of move backwards, Jack. I think the, one of the things you were talking about in the episodes, and you just mentioned, was the concept of Having someone provide some testimony outside the presence of the jury, so could we could we sort of speak to that first?
3: Yeah, I, I spoke to you about this while the show was going out because I was trying to sort of find out a bit more about it. So a bill of exceptions is what they call it in Texas. So the the you know the judge obviously said no, we're not allowing this, and then obviously the the defense argued and said, well, we're not happy about this. We want to put through a bill of exceptions, and which means that they're allowed to have that person give evidence, but it's purely on the basis of potential appeal
2: yeah and just so um, maybe non-lawyer listeners understand uh, there, there's nothing unusual about that it, it typically it's called an offer of proof okay yep. an offer of proof and it comes up a lot in cases where a judge may sustain an objection to a question that you want to ask a witness right and, it, and it's not just this circumstance it could be a multitude multitude of circumstances so I, I asked the question Um, The judge sustains the objection, meaning he's not going to let the witness give that testimony. But as a lawyer, I think it's highly material to my case. And so instead of just letting it drop and there being no record of what the witness would have actually said if allowed to testify and answer the question, you give an offer proof or in Texas a bill of exceptions. So. The person is still allowed to give the answer on the record, so it's preserved. Yeah. So on the appellate court has a full record of what's transpired and what the witness would have said, because if they don't have that, the appellate court doesn't know if it was prejudicial to the defendant or not.
3: Another thing that the judge uh, didn't allow was um, the defense wanted to um, bring forward a potential other. Avenue or other suspect even as to who could have created the injuries that caused the uh, the death of, of little Jasmine, um, you know, that they argue the fact that uh, the Supreme Court says that um, if, if that is their argument, they're allowed to bring it. Although the judge turned around and said, no, I'm not allowing it. Of course, this was a, about the mother. There was a lot of testimony that was given, again, off the record, shall we say, on the record, but without the jury there.
0: Judge said that person was not on trial at this time. So she did not allow us to present any evidence against that person. My attorneys, did use the bill of exceptions and we brought up several witnesses that testified that, you know, that there was always bruises. There was always the kids were kind of afraid of her. Um, they also testified that when they would call her, she would not go pick them up. So they would end up having to call me and I would go pick the kids up and take care of them.
2: Yeah, that, that made no sense to me at all. I mean, of course, if you're a defendant and you have an alternative theory of who committed the crime, you know, you're virtually always going to be allowed to introduce that evidence. It's it's, it's pretty much unheard of where a court would say, no, you can't present evidence of an alternative theory of how the injuries and death occurred. That That's very much out of the mainstream. Uh, so that would not happen certainly today. I don't know what the judge's reasoning was, it it doesn't really make any sense to me. The one thing that we kind of skipped over, we talked about the offer of proof. We didn't touch upon the concept of what the expert was allowed and not allowed to do. Yep. You know, these days, 20 years later, the concept of having an expert witness talking about false confessions and what leads to false false confessions and the various factors that lead to that psychologically and the various factors from a law enforcement technique that lead to it. Those are commonly admitted now, right? Yeah. So that's something very different. But my take on the judge's ruling it in the case, and I don't have the benefit of the whole transcript is, Jack, it seemed like he went halfway. It seemed like he allowed him to talk about factors that lead to a false confession, but sort of stopped and wasn't going to let him apply those things to this case. Absolutely. And certainly wasn't going to, wasn't going to let him do the ultimate conclusion to say that it was a false confession, which that part, I don't think that's unusual. I think a lot of judges wouldn't say he can say one way or the other whether it's a false confession because that's making a credibility determination that's up to the jury. But I think judges would give the expert more rein and more rope in terms of giving their application of the factors to the facts of
3: the case the prosecution went really hard on uh, on the expert saying you know oh so you what you're going to do is you're going to suddenly tell the the jury what's true and what's not true and he's and it give him a he said no that's not what I'm here to do that's up to the jury I'm purely here to explain uh, what factors can lead to a false confession and the techniques that are used um, to elicit possibly a false confession and what can happen I'll, I'll give you the outline and then it's up to the jury to decide the validity of this particular statement based on the information that i've provided
2: yeah it seems like there's so much more information the experts should have been allowed to talk about in terms of explaining the concepts of why false confessions occurred what, what are the various factors um i think the expert did a good job i think you know we're talking 20 years ago i honestly think the prosecutor didn't quite get what the purpose of the expert's testimony was. No, he didn't. I thought was kind of humorous, you know?
3: Yeah, he seemed to, that whole thing seemed to just go around in circles. He just didn't understand. And he did, he said, he even said, I don't know what your purpose is. And it's just like, he just didn't get the concept of what the guy was trying to do. Um, But, I mean, honestly, like, I mean, as as I said, this is the very first time I've really been able to read these transcripts. And it's almost like these these experts get up on, these expert witnesses get up on the stand and, and it feels like they're on trial. I mean, the prosecutor just absolutely goes them.
2: Well, and they should, but they should be to a certain extent, you know, because two points to that, Jack. I mean, when an expert testifies, it makes a lot of sense. they should be subject to very vigorous and rigorous cross-examination because one there's always a question of whether you know they're qualified through the training experience even give the opinion another key consideration is is this a field that's that's recognized peer-reviewed has some basis beyond just what the expert says right and then a third factor is what did the expert do in this particular case what were they given What were they not given? You know, because jurors oftentimes place a lot of weight on expert testimony. So I think it's very much fair game that they should be subject to intense cross-examination. And that's the norm, you know. So I don't find that too um, out of the mainstream. What I did find and what you mentioned was because we're talking about 20 years ago, it wasn't widely accepted necessarily for there to be expert testimony on false confessions. That was something that was kind of new at that time at yeah. least in that jurisdiction. So I think the prosecutor pro- had probably never been confronted with a expert who wanted to testify in false confessions, And clearly from his or her questioning of the expert did not really understand what the purpose of the testimony was, which is unfortunate because to an extent it seemed like the judge didn't quite get it either.
3: Actually, there's one thing I, I, I want to ask you that Saul says that when um, his case first went out to the DA's office, it, it went through the hands of multiple district attorneys, many of them saying they didn't want to take it. I think it was the fourth one that they got to.
0: We actually waited for two and a half years. It was very strange because the first assistant DA that had the case was very, very adamant about me being guilty and uh, at one point she realised she did not have any evidence so she decided to pull out of the case. And so they assigned the case to a second assistant DA, and that assistant DA uh, read it and said, no, I do not want this trial. So they gave it to a third assistant DA, who immediately said, you know, no, I looked through it and there's nothing there, so I don't want this. And so they gave it to a fourth assistant DA who said, you know what, I'll take it to trial.
4: A lot can happen in three years, like
1: a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
3: Is is that normal that a DA can turn around and say, nah, I don't want this case, thanks, and they they just keep going around until someone takes it?
2: No, but I I also kind of want to take that with a grain of salt because... I don't know that someone knows what the motivations were of why a different lawyer was brought in. Yeah. I mean, I find it hard to believe that anyone who would have told him or his attorney, I'm the newly assigned prosecutor. I don't want to prosecute the case because I think the evidence is too thin. He may have been drawing that inference himself that because now we're on attorney two or three or four, that there was a reluctance and there was a view that the evidence was thin. But I don't know that to be true. And I find it kind of somewhat hard to believe Okay. but yeah sometimes you know there's a, a different prosecutor assigned to a case and there's all sorts of reasons you know that prosecutor goes to a different division that prosecutor runs for judge and wins that prosecutor leaves the office that prosecutor goes to a private law firm so oftentimes if cases stick around for a while you know there may be different people assigned to it and very rarely is it going to be because someone's trying to hand it off because they don't think that it's a good case I mean that that can happen but I just don't know if that I buy that that we have enough information to take that as the reason in this case.
3: Okay, well, I mean, as we know the, the jury uh ends up finding him guilty he was on I mean, he was initially up for capital murder. He was found not guilty of capital murder but found guilty of uh felony murder. Um can you explain the difference of those two for us? Sure.
2: Well, in general, felony murder in most states is simply is murder's committed in the context of some felony being committed. So, The idea here would be that he was engaged in a felony act, meaning the alleged striking of the child and a murder occurred, even though that was not his intent. Okay, so you can be guilty of felony murder, even if you didn't have the intent to commit the murder. A murder results from a felony act, sometimes a felony committed by some other participant when you are jointly engaged in committing a crime. Um, Capital murder is just a murder that's eligible for the death penalty. Uh, Apparently, the jury must have believed he didn't probably have the intent to murder the child. Um, If they if they took his statement as true, if they believed that statement, it would have meant that he did kill the child, but he had no intention to do so. He lost his temper or whatever. And he it was not premeditated, not intend for that result to occur. So that sounds like what happened there, you know, a compromise, which obviously spared his life.
3: Uh, speaking of the jury I found out that apparently after you know the the whole case had gone through and the the verdict was given Seul's uh, attorneys were uh, given access to the jury by the the judge the judge allowed them to to talk with them which I've read that that can that can happen on occasions um, just to find out how the jury came to their decision Saul says that um, when his attorney spoke to the jury and said, "Oh look how did you come to your conclusion apparently the jury suggested that well the prosecution didn't really prove to them that Saul did it but then the, the jury said but then again the defense didn't prove otherwise
2: that's unfortunate that's reasonable that's doubt a, that's exactly jack yeah jack you're becoming you still got to get that law degree i know i need to pass but, the uh, bar oh yeah i mean if that was the thought process that the government didn't prove its case they should have been done you know that means the government did meet their burden of proving him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and the fact that they then said oh but the defense hasn't disproven the government's allegations. That's really troubling because that really puts reasonable doubt on its head. um, And that's really disappointing. Did they give any indication of how much weight they gave to the statements. They must have given the as a lot of weight.
3: I don't know uh, the answer to that, but I I would assume, I mean, because literally there was no there was no one that got on the stand to testify against him. It was purely just based on the statement. And of course, the med- medical examiner's report stating that um, the four punches to the gut was the cause of the death of the child uh, and he had ruled it a homicide. So, which are pretty, you know, they're, they're pretty solid pieces of evidence, you know, if a jury's sitting there listening Uh, To a case, you know, you've got a statement where the the accused is saying that he caused the injuries and then the medical examiner's report saying, well, those injuries caused the death.
2: Yeah, I I thought, you know, the the medical issues were really interesting because the the defense expert testifying for the defendant on cross-examination, he made an awful lot of concessions that were favorable to the state. My reading of his testimony was that, you know, the blows certainly could have caused the bruising and injuries didn't seem to even rule out that it could cause death. The only thing that he really was strong on was that there's a multitude of other injuries, which could not be accounted for by the way the statement was created with the way Saul said it occurred. If he really said that, or the detective said it occurred so that that defense expert, really helped the state in a lot of ways, I thought.
3: I did think exactly the same when I read that. I was thinking, she's re- this person's really not helping at all.
2: But I think that that's why the judge's decision to not allow evidence about the mother in was very prejudicial, because here's this expert for the defense saying, hey, look, uh, there's a lot of injuries on this child, and most, a lot of them cannot be explained if you accept his true soul statement, if you accept the, the version of the statement, they couldn't have been created in the manner in which the statement says that they were. Yeah. So it leaves this gaping hole that a lot of injuries might have been caused on other occasions or within a few days, which, of course, would lead to the idea that it was somebody else, perhaps the mother, some caregiver that caused the death of the child because soul wouldn't have had probably access to the kid three days or, or extended period of time before. So that's when the mother's testimony being barred becomes even more prejudicial to the defense, you know? But yeah, it's, it's a case that has, has so much counterbalancing evidence. The troublesome thing for a lot of jurors is just getting over the idea that someone would admit yeah. in a sworn statement that they initialed all those places that they would admit to harming a child. So look, look, There's all these reasons why people give false confessions, but practically jurors struggle with this idea still, even if an expert tells them why they might've given a false confession, jurors still struggle with this concept of if it was me, I don't care what happened. I would never admit that I did something to this child if I didn't do it. Yeah. So that's where it all comes down to credibility and who you believe, you know? So if you believe that someone would, would never say that in a statement, then you're never
3: going to find him not guilty. And I think that's where a video recording of the interrogation helps because I'm the same. When I very first heard a false confession, I was like, well, there's just no way I'm admitting to a murder if I hadn't done it. I don't care how long I'm in there for. But then if you actually watch, I mean, I've watched so many of these things now. If you literally watch the interrogation, you can just see these people breaking down. I mean, some of them I've watched, they start up sitting up and saying, no, absolutely, I had nothing to do this. By the end of it, they're hunched over. Some of them are crying. You can see that they're just being mentally broken
2: yeah as you know it's fascinating to watch because you can watch a long videotaped interrogation and you you see exactly what you just described you you see over a period of time uh you just see them coming at the person coming at the person all sorts of different directions and then you see this break you literally see it where they you know all of a sudden go along whether it's true or false with what the detectives or agents are telling them. It's really kind of
3: interesting to watch. It's a fascinating subject and we'll have a, a doctor on or a professor on very soon to, to discuss it further. You're potentially not surprised at the conviction?
2: The injustice still I think exists in the fact that we're talking about outdated methods in terms of 20 years ago, not audio taping and videotaping. So that's a huge hole, but it doesn't answer the question of whether he did it or not. So uh, I'm troubled by the manner in which the interrogation was conducted because there's no real evidence of what was said beside the statement itself. So that, that still troubles me. I think that is an injustice, Um, whether it means he did it or not is a whole nother ball game. Um, But I do believe that there were some major errors, which if you're correct, that the jurors were really struggling with this one, if evidence would have been allowed, if the mother really did engage in abuse or, um, hitting or anything with regard to the, this or the other children, you know, that exclusion of evidence may have really changed the course of the trial. Right. Um, I do think that was error. So do I think based on those errors, it's an injustice in terms of how the trial was run? Yes. Because it probably impacted the outcome. Um, we still will probably never know guilt or innocence, but he probably would have gotten a not guilty jury verdict if some of these errors did not occur
3: you know yeah and one last thing just uh, another thing that made me sort of my jaw sort of drop and how long did the jury deliberate
0: <laughs> because it was on July the 3rd they deliberated for maybe four hours at the most I think I don't even think it was four hours I think it was less than that and the reason being is because the judge pressured them to have a decision made before the, the holiday four if hours. not if she was going to sequester them for the whole holiday until the following day
3: so, oh, wow. I mean,
2: that's that's error. That, that's just error. It's just it's just telling the jury that they need to essentially finish by a certain time or they're going to be punished for that. That's that's really a, a, a bad thing to do for a judge. And a lot of courts would think that, you know, it might even be reversible. But that's that's something that's pretty rare and it should never happen. But don't you guys don't you have any expats over there in Australia who, like, eat hot dogs and blow off fireworks on July 4th?
3: Yeah, well, not the fireworks part. Fireworks are illegal. Um, but uh, yeah, other than that, uh, yeah, no, I, I have a few mates that are American. I mean, you know, I, I don't hold that against them. Uh, I still hang out with them occasionally. Um. <laughs> <laughs> they, say the same, they say the same thing about you, Jack. Yeah, I you bet.
2: Aussies cannot blow off fireworks. There's a rule, no
3: fireworks in the country. Yeah, well, no, you, no you're you just not allowed to. Personal firework. I can't go to the shops and buy some fireworks and set them off in my backyard. No, that's illegal. Wow,
2: I thought Aussies we're always so fun-loving. It's yeah. changing my viewpoint, Jack.
3: Lastly, I, the first time I'm reading these transcripts, and Jesus, it's it's exciting nonetheless. I mean, it now makes me want to sit in a courtroom and watch one of these trials because I was just completely enthralled reading the transcripts of the back and forth that goes on.
2: The only reason I am a lawyer is because I get to try cases. I don't think I could be one if we couldn't try cases. It, it, there, there's nothing more fun in the profession than trying a case It's ultimate um, adrenaline rush for the entire time you're on trial and then you're trying to come back to real life when you're done and nobody cares about your case and your trial except for a couple of people. So you got to find those people that you tried the case with so you can tell your stories to each other over and over.
3: It seems like a fascinating uh, world to to live in. So, I mean, I, I don't think I'll ever... Uh, pass that bar I mean never say never I Jack might just... you
2: could be You could be like you, you could be like The first guy That went from Podcaster to lawyer <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think we should We should do A fundraising campaign Maybe a separate Patreon campaign Raise money for your Law school education How about that uh, Oh yeah
3: I mean mate I dropped out of high school When I was 16 So I don't see myself Passing any bars Anytime soon <laughs> Education's not my thing <laughs>
1: You have One minute Remaining
3: Well, as always, a huge thank you to Michael for taking time out of his extremely busy schedule to give us his expert opinion on this case. And we will, of course, check back in with him after our next story as we return to Florida and another possible love triangle gone wrong.
1: My name is Karen, and I am currently serving a 25-year mandatory sentence to life with 22 years on top. I was convicted of premeditated first-degree murder and attempted first degree
3: murder for the death of my Ben's husband. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted, and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the A Cast Creator Network.